let's open up to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 2 this morning, and I want to briefly review what we talked about last week. Uh, We started at the beginning of chapter 2, and we went through verse 8. And we saw God open the door of opportunity for Nehemiah. He had spent four months praying, fasting, preparing for that moment when God would open the door for a conversation that he could have with the king about the burden that he had to go back home to his homeland and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And we noted two specific things last week from Nehemiah's encounter with the king. And here was the first one I want to remind you of. Once... In a lifetime, opportunities often come in our everyday faithfulness. Nehemiah said, I was doing what I do every single day before the king, and an opportunity arose. And sometimes we're guilty of just looking for burning bushes all the time. We're guilty of looking for these big, huge moments where God puts a neon sign and flashing lights and bells and whistles and glowing arrows pointing at the moment saying, this is your opportunity. But because Nehemiah was faithfully serving the Lord, faithfully serving the king, every single day he saw a door of opportunity open that had he not been faithful, he may not have seen. And we will see those doors of opportunity in our lives the most when we're just faithfully serving and doing what the Lord calls us to do every day. The second thing that we talked about last week was that we will see God's faithfulness in our plans when we plan for God's faithfulness. And I hope that you, you got that last week, or if you weren't here last week, let me just tell you what that means. That means that when we ask God to move in our life, when we ask God to move in our family or in our church, We need to prepare in faith for the moment that he actually does what we're asking him to do. Because many times we will ask him to do great things and then we will sit down and do nothing. In essence saying to him, I'm not really sure that you're going to do what I'm asking you to do. I don't anticipate that you're actually going to come through God. So I'm just sitting here doing nothing. And that's not what Nehemiah did. His prayer, his fasting, his time before the Lord was building up to a moment he knew was coming. He didn't know when it was coming, but he knew he was going to have an opportunity to speak to the king. And so he was getting ready for it. And you remember that when the king asked him a simple question, how long is it going to take? Nehemiah gave him a detailed explanation of exactly how long he would be gone. And king, I need these letters from you to pass through the regions to get there safely and I need lumber and I need wood so I need you to give me a letter from the woodsman telling me giving me the material I need like he had his act together because he was building an anticipation and preparing for when God actually did what he was asking God to do so if we believe that God's going to be faithful we'll prepare if we don't we won't and so this morning we're going to finish, um, go through the rest of chapter 2 quickly, and um, I thought about one of my favorite 80s television shows when um, I was reading this. Who remembers the A-Team back in the day? I love the A-Team. That was one of my favorite 80s uh, shows that came, I don't even remember what night of the week it came on, but it was awesome. And that van, y'all, I wanted that van. 
that van was, and it's still awesome. And if I had a van, if I had that year and model, I would paint it and, and make it look just like 18 van. It was awesome. But my favorite character, my favorite member of the A-team, everybody had their own favorite. Mine was not B.A., it was not Hannibal, it was not Face, and it wasn't Murdoch. My favorite was Hannibal. Um, Hannibal was my guy because he was the cool one. He seemed to act as if he had things under control all the time. But he had this one tagline, and you guys that are A-team fans, you know what? Hannibal used to always say they would get to the moment in the show. I think he said it every single show. He would have that cigar in his mouth and he'd be biting it on it with his teeth and he would look over at one of the other guys and go, what? I love it when a plan comes together. That was his thing. And he said that at almost every episode, that was his line. And when, when I'm reading about what Nehemiah, what happens in the second chapter, that's what I was thinking about. This is him experiencing the plan coming together. Okay, so let's start in verse 9. So he's approached the king. He's gotten permission from the king. He's gathered from the king what he needs. And so then in verse 9, he says, I went. I went to the governors of the regions west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard, official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites. They were greatly displeased. So you notice very quickly from verse 8 to verse 9, he's gone. He goes. Uh, he doesn't sit around and wait. Um, because at this point he knows what his next step is, the Lord's already revealed it to him. So now that he's got permission, he's got what he needs, he doesn't waste any time, and he starts setting out for Jerusalem. But verse 9 tells us that the king sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with Nehemiah. And so you, you might wonder, well, why would he do that? Why would he send like a small, almost like a small army like a special forces group or whatever, to go with Nehemiah. Why would he do that? Well, the reason he would do that was our first point. I've got three points for you to remember this morning. So here's the first one. When God's plan comes together, opposition is inevitable. He sent soldiers with Nehemiah because he knew Nehemiah was going to experience opposition. Because he knew that each time... Nehemiah went through one of those regions and delivered a letter to the king, I mean, to, the, to that governor or whatever official was over that region, that those officials were going to start talking. And they were going to notice. So there would have been communication going on between all of these guys saying, hey, Nehemiah's coming through, and he's got, he's got soldiers with him, and he's got uh, these collections of materials and building stuff. Like, he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem and he's going to rebuild the city walls and they would not have been happy about it. And Nehemiah mentioned specifically these two men, Sanballat and Tobiah. They were both Persian officials, Sanballat, a, a, a governor um, over Samaria, uh, Tobiah also in that same region. And they served under the authority of King Cyrus and it says that when they found out that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, 
They were greatly displeased. You know what that means? They were ticked off. And you say, well, what, what was their big deal? Why did, they have a, why did they have a problem with it? Because they had political power over that region. And their political power came from the vulnerability of the people. Which is not uncommon to most political power we still see today. It comes from the people being vulnerable. And they knew that if Nehemiah showed up and he rebuilt the wall, that that was going to build the strength of the people. That was going to build the confidence of the people and that would make it harder for them to rule by threatening them with their authority. And so they knew this was going to hurt them and their authority over the people so they were not happy about it. For us, I think we need to understand when we pray and God reveals the plan, a vision to us, And we go from that phase of planning and praying and preparing and we get to our verse 9 where it says, I went and we start going and we start stepping, opposition is coming. And we can't be naive to that. It may not be a governor, it may not be an army, it, it might be, but it may not be. But I tell you what, the enemy, we have a spiritual enemy in Satan, that he is going to take notice. The way those governors were taking notice, Nehemiah's coming through, what is he up to? He's not just sitting in Persia anymore serving the king. He's, he's coming to do something. When the enemy sees that God's church is coming to do something, he's going to take notice, and he's going to try to do something about it. So don't be naive to that. When God's plan comes together, you're going to face opposition. And some of you know what that's like. Because you faced it. You may be facing it right now. God is, is growing in you. He's growing, he's growing in this church right now. Over the past few weeks, I've been so encouraged to see what he's doing. But you know what? I'm, I'm on guard a little bit. And you should be too. You should be watching for the enemy. He'll come into, he'll come into your home. He'll come into our church. He'll do whatever he can to disrupt it. And you know the other scary thing about it? He could disrupt the church using one of us. So don't be naive. Opposition is inevitable. Let's keep going. Look at verse 11. So he goes on this journey and he gets there. Verse 11. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. So we find out that once Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he stays there for three days and he doesn't do anything. And we wonder, well, why is that? He seems to be a pretty gung-ho guy. He seems to be somebody who's ready and prepared and and, and he's going to take every advantage he gets. Why would he get there and just sit for three days and do nothing? Well, one, he was probably tired. That trip would have been probably around 800 miles, give or take a few. And at the, the pace they likely would have been traveling, this would have been a three to four month journey. This isn't everybody hop in the minivan and let's go. And get there in a day or two. He spent 
almost as long traveling to get to Jerusalem as he did praying before he went to the king. So he's likely tired. But then I think also, I, I kind of like to put myself in the place of people in Scripture. And we see how he reacted at the news of Jerusalem being dilapidated and torn down. Can you imagine what he would have felt as he came and he came over that last ridge and saw the city for the first time? Like before, it was just a report. It was, it was descriptions given to him by other people, and he had not seen it. And remember, it's very likely Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem before because he was probably born in Persia. He'd never even seen his homeland. So when he comes across and goes over and he sees what is supposed to be the city of God, supposed to be the city of God's people, his homeland, it's a mess. And, and he says, when he first heard the news, that he mourned and it broke his heart. So I can imagine that Nehemiah needed a few days to get over the emotional brokenness of seeing what he actually was being called to do. It was heavy. So it says after those days, he did something. He gathered some of his men together, probably men who knew what his mission was, faithful men that he trusted. And he got them together and he said, let's go look at the wall, but he does it under the cover of night. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, he knew he had enemies, right? He knew there was opposition. And so he knew that those governors, those officials from those other regions, from Samaria and around, they were going to have eyes in Jerusalem. They were going to be watching every move that he made. And so he's trying to keep his plan under wraps as best he can right now because it's not the proper time. He, doesn't, he needs to work out the next step of the plan. But also he was keeping it a secret, not just from the enemies, but from the people. From the ones who were going to actually be doing the work because he had, he had not revealed it to the people yet. And he went out to examine the wall with these trusted men. So verse 13 is where he describes his, his process of examining what was there. So look at verse 13. He says, I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. This is where we see the second point that I want to mention to you. When God's plan comes together, examination is essential. We already know that opposition is coming. It's inevitable. Get ready for it. But examination is essential 
you can see he gives a pretty detailed explanation of, of what he did. And you notice that he started through the valley gate in verse 13. And when he finished and came back, he returned in verse 15 through the valley gate. He, w- he made a thorough examination and came right back to where he started. And he looked over everything. See, God had shown Nehemiah the big picture. The big picture was the walls are torn down, the city is in ruins. Go back and rebuild the wall. Lead the people to rebuild the wall. That part he got and he knew. But once he got there and he saw the state of things, he had to examine what was there so that God could reveal to him the next steps in the plan. Any of you guys or girls who are good at building things, you're good with your hands, construction, some of y'all, can, you can say, hey, build this, and we'll be like, I cannot. I am not that person at all. I can't build anything without somebody right there to tell me how to do everything. But you know, if you're repairing, like if, if you're repairing a house or you decide you want to go flip a house, you have to thoroughly inspect everything. And you got to find the details of what needs to be fixed and what needs to be replaced. And you have to be thorough. Something may be really small, but if you miss it, it could sabotage everything else you're doing. God may show us the big picture for what he wants in our life, in our relationship with him, what he wants in our marriages, our families, what he wants in our church. And he'll reveal the big picture to us, and we see that. But there's going to come a time where the details have to be looked at. We have to get specific. We have to dig down deep. And it's good to celebrate. We, we should always celebrate the great things that God is doing. But this examination that we're talking about can be really painful. There's a time to celebrate the good things, but there's also a time to intentionally look for the bad things. There's a time to intentionally look for what is broken and to examine the state of things in detail. And that starts starts with us. We have to ask God to help us examine ourselves to find out where we are broken down. So we have to have honest, open examination before the Lord. I think of Psalm 139, 23 and 24. David said, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive ways in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. David understood this principle. And that's what he's expressing in this psalm. He knew that before he could be led, there was a time of learning that he had to go through. And sometimes we just, we see God's vision, we see what he wants us to do, and maybe we just jump up and be like, okay, God, let's do it. But we're not, we're not prepared because we've not really examined, well, what specifically needs to be done? What, what in my heart, what kind of questions are going to help me figure out what's really broken? And that applies in lots of different ways. In my own relationship with God, I have to search my heart and ask him to help me see where the cracks and, and the holes and the brokenness is. Maybe it's our families that we're asking God to help us rebuild. Well, there's a time we have to look at the state of things and get specific. Where do we start? 
What's one thing that I can begin with that will help me get toward that big picture? And the same thing's tr- true in our church. We have to look, we have to examine, because there's cracks, and there's holes, and there's things that, that aren't done well, that aren't built well. And I'm not, even, I'm not talking about buildings. I'm talking about people and relationships and, and, and ministry. So we have to ask questions like, God, what parts of my relationship with you are broken? What specific parts of my family are broken? What specific parts of our church and the way we serve and lead, where are the cracks? Where are the gaps and the holes? There's a time then you have to, that you have to determine what can be repaired and what needs to just be torn down to the ground and replaced. As Nehemiah was, was checking out what was there, he was trying to determine where are the places where there's already a good solid maybe foundation that we can take and build on what's already here. And there may have been pieces of the wall that were like that. But there may have been other pieces and other parts that he's, wow, this is so broken, we, need to, we have to just tear all this out down to the ground and start over. And that takes work. That takes work and, and, that's, and that's painful. It's not easy. But that's what he's doing. And that's what we have to do. So once Nehemiah examined, discovered the details of what needed to be done and where he needed to start, then he goes to the people in verse 17. Now we don't know how big of a group of people he's talking to or who makes up this group. But we know that these are the Jews that have come back from exile, and he gathers them together in verse 17, and this is what he says. So I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding, and their hands were strengthened to do this good work. I often think that when we read a passage like this and we think about Nehemiah as a leader, Nehemiah is a a model of leadership. And so oftentimes we look at this and we go, wow, um, Nehemiah is awesome. Like he's a great leader. What a great leader to have a vision like that and then to call the people to that vision. Nehemiah, you're awesome. I think if we were to say that to Nehemiah, Nehemiah would go, whoa, uh-uh, I'm not awesome. This is not my plan. This is God's. And I think maybe sometimes we think great leaders um, come up with great plans. But I don't think great plans come from great leaders. I think great plans come from God. Y'all, if, if God has a great plan for this church, I'm not going to come up with it because I'm not that smart. I don't have a clue. I haven't even been doing this for four years, and I still don't have a clue most of the time what I'm doing. Great plans don't come from great leaders. Great plans come from God. 
You know what makes a great leader is someone who can listen to God's plan. Great leaders don't come up with the plans. Great leaders listen to God. God comes up with the plan, and the leaders listen to God, and then they start stepping in pattern with what God's saying. That's the kind of leader I want to be because I don't know anything, but I can listen, and you can listen. And if something is going to happen in this church, if God has a great plan for this church, it's not all up to me to figure it out. It's up to all of us to listen. And when we listen, he's going to say something to you. And he's going to say, here's something that I want you to do. Here's a crack. Here's a hole. This is how you can fill it. And then over here, he's going to say something like that, but it's going to be different. It's going to be a different part. It's going to be a different piece. And so everybody's listening and everybody's following, and something great happens. Proverbs 29, 18 is a verse that we're real familiar with. Um, but I want us to look at it. I want to show you several translations of it, actually. The CSB, Proverbs 21, or 28, 19, says, Without revelation, people run wild. But one who follows divine instruction will be happy. Most of us have heard this from the King James Version. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. If you go back and look at the CSB, it says without revelation, the people run wild. Where does revelation come from? Not from a leader. Revelation comes from God. So without God's revelation to the people, they'll run all over the place. Isn't that true? But I, and sometimes I go to the message and I like to see what the message says. And sometimes I'm not crazy about the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, but sometimes I really like it. In this case, I really like it. 2918 from the message says, if people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. I like the way he paraphrases that because it puts the focus on the fact that the plan comes from God, not from men. And if we can't see what God is doing, we will. We'll stumble all over ourselves because we'll all have different ideas about what God's doing because we're kind of making it up as we go. What we need is, is, is to ask God for eyes to be able to see together what he's doing. That we're all seeing the same work. We're all seeing the same mission that he's given us. And when we attend to what he reveals, says we will be most blessed. Something will get done. But we've got to be focused on what he's doing. Verse 18 says that when Nehemiah presented the plan that their hands were strengthened for the work. They're, they were fired up. They got excited. They were strengthened. And they were strengthened by the vision. And the vision came from God. You see that? God presents the, the vision, the plan. The people see it with Nehemiah's help. And then they're strengthened to be, actually be able to do it. So before we're strong enough to do it, we've got to see it. And we've got to see it together. 
It was about more than safety and security for the people. It was about honor and respect. And it wasn't all about just honor and respect for them. It was about honor and respect for God among the other nations. And so they were fired up to put their hands to work. And their hands working was going to be their worship. As they were restoring and putting together this wall. Because they had been down for a long time. You know, the um, 1985 Chicago Bears uh, was perhaps one of the greatest defenses in the history of the NFL. I know that can be argued by people. But when you start ranking the, the best NFL defenses of all time, the 1985 Bears are definitely always in the discussion. And the heart of that defense was a guy named Mike Singletary. And after a game, once a commentator was interviewing Singletary on the sideline, and he asked him this question. He said, how do you get clobbered on one side of the field and then a few seconds later make a tackle on the other side of the field? Because Mike Singletary did that stuff. He might be on one side of the play and a couple of linemen take him down. He's on the ground, but then a few seconds later, he's on the other side of the field making the tackle. And so this commentator asked him, how do you do that? You know what he said? Three words, I get up. When he got knocked down, he got up, and he kept playing. This was Nehemiah's call to the people when he says, let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He's gathering the people. I can imagine Nehemiah maybe standing on top of, of a mound of rubble. And what he's saying to the people is, let's get up. Let's get up. It's time. We, we have been down, but God has set a vision before us. He's given us a plan. So let's get up and do it. And then look at verse 19. Here comes the opposition. When Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. Listen to what Nehemiah says. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah says, you know what, guys? You can say whatever you want to say, but this city isn't yours. This land is not yours. This land, this city, and this people belong to God. And he will determine what happens. Here's the last point. When God's plan comes together, success is certain. Amen. It's not questionable. It's not, oh, if God gives a vision to his people and the people see the vision and then their hands are strengthened and they get to work doing it and maybe it will be successful. No, that's not even what Nehemiah says. He says, the God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. He's like, you guys can try whatever you want to try, but you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Because it's certain. Success is certain. See, Sanballat and Tobiah, they, they couldn't openly attack the Jews. They couldn't 
come against them with force because they knew the king had issued a, a decree. The king had said they're allowed to come back to their homeland and begin to rebuild. And they knew that Nehemiah had letters and resources and blessings from King Cyrus. So they knew they couldn't come against him to physically stop him because then they would be in trouble with the king. So you notice what they did. They tried to intimidate. They started running their mouth, which can be just as powerful, can it? They started to intimidate and mock them, and they tried to use the same accusation that led to the end of the, destruction, of the construction in the first time in Ezra. If you read Ezra, the people were beginning to rebuild the wall, and then probably these same guys went to the king and said, King, the people in Jerusalem are trying to rebel against you because they're trying to rebuild their city because they're, they're building a rebellion, and the king shuts that down. So this time they think, oh, well, we'll use the same accusation and Nehemiah didn't fall for it because he had already, God had already revealed to him what he was supposed to do and God had already set it in motion. God had provided what he needed to get the job done. So he knew there was a certainty that gave Nehemiah strength to be able to stand up to these guys and that certainty of success was based on his certainty of God. So we can be certain. We can be certain about success. We can be certain of this, folks, that God has a good plan. God doesn't put together faulty plans. He doesn't give visions with, with holes and cracks in them. His, his plan works, and it will be successful if we see it, and in seeing the vision, our hands will be strengthened to do it. So we can know that God's plan is good and that if we're in tune with him, it will be successful. But we also have to know those other two things, that opposition is inevitable. Get ready for it. Because when you start putting your hands to work, Satan will begin to move and he will come against us. But ex examination is key. And you can't start examining a church full of other people, you can't start examining anything until you pray that prayer of David in Psalm 139 and say, God, search my heart. Show me my brokenness in detail. And show me what to do to fix it. And you know what? When he shows it to you and you take the steps and your hands are strengthened to do it, success is certain. And he'll do something great. 